Welcome back to the program. For those of you that are regular viewers of sports, Olympic level or professional, extreme sports or even golf, you know that what human beings are capable of is constantly increasing. What we're learning is that the extension of human performance is not just about higher or stronger or faster. It's also about the mental component, what we're capable of with our minds, the mental performance that we are able to achieve. This has been called being in the zone or flow. The idea of flow has been around and widely studied for many years, but today with our new forms of peering into the brain and into the very idea of consciousness, we're finding both the internal insights and the far-flung potential of human performance. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Stephen Kotler. He's a New York Times best-selling author, an award-winning journalist, the author of the previous books Abundance and the Angle Quickest for Flight. His articles have appeared in numerous publications. And he is the co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project. It is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Kotler back to this program to talk about the rise of Superman, decoding the science of ultimate human performance. Stephen Kotler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. First of all, talk a little bit about your own personal story and how you came to really be fascinated with this whole idea of flow and personal performance. It's a very personal story. It, uh, flow states saved my life. I was 30 years old and got Lyme disease and spent the better portion of three years in bed. And uh, was, if you don't know what a Lyme is, it's sort of like the worst flu you've ever had, crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. And uh, after three years, the doctors had pulled me off medicine. There was nothing else anybody could do for me. Um, and they never knew if I was going to get any better. Nobody could help it. I was functional literally like 10% of the time. And it was awful. And... I was at this point, I was really seriously considering suicide because there was really nothing else I could do. I wasn't able to work. I wasn't able to think. I couldn't write. I couldn't, nothing, nothing was working. I was just going to be a burden to my friends and my family from that point on. And kind of in the middle of all this, you know, darkness, a friend of mine showed up my door and demanded that we go surfing. And it was, you know, it was a totally ridiculous request. I couldn't walk across a room, forget about, you know, going surfing. And she was really, really, really insistent. And after hours of her badgering, I, I was like, you know what? Fine. I mean, let's go surfing today. What is the worst that can happen? And they drove me out to Sunset Beach in Los Angeles, which is just about the wimpiest beginner break in the world. <laughs> they gave me a board the size of a Cadillac. People had to, like, they had to help me out to the break. It was a tiny day, tiny waves. No one was out because it was so crappy out. But I was out there about 30 seconds and a wave came and I muscle memory took over and I spun my board around and I paddled a couple of times and I popped up and I popped up into an absolutely different dimension. I mean, everything was off. My senses were incredibly heightened. Time had slowed to this like freeze frame crawl. I felt like I had panoramic vision and the, and the most miraculous part was I felt great. I mean, I felt like filled with life and that throne of possibility and it was the best I had kind of felt in, in years and years and years and I felt so good I caught four more waves that day and after the fifth wave I was totally dissembled they brought me home they put me into bed and people had to bring me food for like 14 days because I couldn't walk to the kitchen to make a meal and on the 15th day which was the day I could walk again I went back to the beach and I did it again and over the course of about six months and the only thing I was doing differently in my life was surfing and having these very strange quasi-mystical experiences. In the waves, I went from about 10% functionality to about 80% functionality. 
So, you know, my first question was, what the hell is going on, right? Surfing is not a known cure for autoimmune conditions. And second of all, I'm a science writer. I don't have quasi-mystical experiences while surfing. <laughs> um, I don't have quasi-mystical experiences, period. And so I was, you know, Lyme is only fatal if it gets in your brain. And I was pretty sure these mystical experiences were happening because, um, because the disease had gotten in my brain and I was dying. So where this began is a giant quest to figure out what the heck was going on with me and was I dying. And, what, you know, what I very quickly discovered was I was experiencing flow states and, you know, these have, you know, significant impact on kind of the immune system, the nervous system, which was helping me heal. And, you know, this led to an, another immediate kind of realization, which was the exact same kind of technology that was helping me go from subpar back to normal was helping normal people become Superman. And that's sort of where all this started. And as you started to understand it and discover it, did the evidence at first lead towards something biochemical going on, something neurological going on? Where did the information and the research lead initially? Initially, it led me to Dr. Andrew Newberg's work. He was at the University of Pennsylvania, and he was just he had just finished very early research where he was using a spec scan to image the brains of Tibetan nuns, uh, excuse me, Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns who experience um, what's known as unity, which is the feeling, the sensation of being one with everything. And this is a sensation that shows up in deep flow experiences. Surfers talk about becoming one with the waves, for example, and that was something I was experiencing. And what he discovered was that the reason this was happening was what we now term transient hypofrontality, which means the kind of temporary deactivation of the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that houses kind of most of your higher cognitive function. And what, what this was happening, there's a part of your brain, kind of the right parietal lobe, that, whose job it is is to help us navigate through space, distinguish self from other. And in deep flow, this was turning off. And the reason people were feeling one with everything was because the part of their brain that is charged with distinguishing self through other that helps us navigate through space was literally turned off. And that there was kind of biology underneath our spirituality and that you know, the, same, the same amount of attention that is needed to produce meditation is needed to ride waves. And that was really obvious to Andrew Newberg and to me right away. So that was, that was the first chunk. It was the first like, oh my God, hey, wait a minute, there's, there's real neuroscience underneath this. And was it measurable in some way? Did you begin to understand how this could be quantified? Well, that's interesting because that's essentially the you know the problem that Csikszentmihalyi and a lot of other right. people have devoted um, tremendous amounts of time to. So you know, flow research spans about 150 years. Csikszentmihalyi did his early work in the 60s and 70s, and you know at that point he kind of developed a way to quantify flow to try to measure it. It was subjective. But over the next 30 years, it's extremely well validated. There are like three or four different kind of suggested metrics out there that, that scientists really trust. And we are now starting to poke in, as, as kind of Rise made clear, at the front end of kind of the biophysical markers. So we're now, there are biophysical markers. People are, you know, have lots of different suspicions. And I think we're going to start seeing, you know, hard confirmations over the next couple of years. Because of the seeming fragility of it, when one is in that state, it seems like it would be a difficult thing to measure because measuring it somehow impacts on the process. It does. We can. There's there's all kinds of of different ways of doing it. For example, uh, pupil dilation is a very uh, accurate measure of norepinephrine in the brain, and there is correlation between pupil dilation and. Uh, 
brainwave states as well. So that's a very non-invasive way to get get at that. We're, we have now wireless portable EEGs that basically can kind of fit inside a ball cap um, and, and give you a look at, you know, brainwaves. So a lot of this stuff is getting a lot less invasive and... Um, We've had, and we've had, you know, with the, the even with the in, incredibly invasive psychological techniques, like Chick sent me his earliest research, where he gave people a pager and page them eight times a day and asked them if they were in flow and fill out this questionnaire. Um, we still, you know, enough people went through those surveys. I think it was like nine thousand people by the time that first major study was done. You know, the data on it is is robust enough that there's a there there. Right, it's still murky and squishy, and a lot of the work that we're trying to do with the Flow Genome Project is to really put kind of harder numbers around it. But there's a there there, and we can measure it. Talk a little bit about the merger of really the two principal ideas here, both action and awareness, and how it relates both to sports and things like surfing, but also to less action-oriented things like writing. So. What happens in flow, we talked a second ago about transient hypofrontality, right, which is various structures in the brain get turned off in flow. Um, large parts of that is, you know, your sense of self, who you are, um, and is separate and distinct from the world. It's all housed in your prefrontal cortex. So parts of that shut down in flow. And the result is kind of this merger of action and awareness. What's really going on under the hood is we are trading slower, kind of less energy-efficient conscious processing, which is very, very limited, for much, much faster and much more wide-open subconscious processing and much more efficient subconscious processing, right? And flow is really one of the only times in our lives we actually get to kind of watch the subconscious work, and it works at much higher speeds than we're used to thinking, and, you know, it really it looks very distorted and kind of miraculous um, when you're in flow and kind of experiencing that, right? But it's really just the kind of subconscious doing its stuff and you getting to see a little bit of that. How does it impact with creativity? Do we have a sense of that? It's a great question, and uh, we have a we have great we actually we have great data kind of all around uh, the problem. First of all, at, at a front level, we know flow has a significant impact on creativity. Uh, for example, a study that was recently done in Australia, where they took 40 people, they gave them a very tricky uh, brain teaser that, that needed you know incredibly creative problem solving to solve. 40 people couldn't solve it. They induced flow artificially, actually using transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation. They shot a magnetic pulse through people's brains and sort of induced transient hypofrontality. Um, and uh, as soon as they did this, 23 people solved the problem in record time. In research done by my organization, the Flow Genome Project, surveys find that people report being seven times as productive in flow, so that's 700%. Um, more uh, or seven, seven times more creative in flow, so 700% more creative. And at Harvard, uh, and this is really interesting, researchers have found that that heightened creativity outlasts the flow state itself that people report it the day after, sometimes two days after a flow state, which suggests that not only does flow train allow us to be more creative in the moment, it may train the brain to be more creative over time. So that's kind of the front end, and uh, you know uh, we we know the impact on creativity is is significant, and we also know where it comes from. So besides kind of transient hypofrontality, which does actually impact creativity, because our when we get kind of our self monitoring, you know, that voice in our head out of the picture when it disappears, um, with transient hypofrontality, we stop judging our new ideas. So we're we're more open to new ideas. We're more willing to take risks, 
and you know, we, our ideas tend to spiral because we're not judging them. We'll go from one good idea to the next. Simultaneously, flow is caused by this kind of giant cascade of really potent neurochemicals, all of which enhance performance um, and many of which have an impact on creativity. You get dopamine and norepinephrine, which heighten focus. They allow us to take in more information, give us greater access to novel information, which we need for creativity. And they also jack up pattern recognition, our ability to make connections between ideas. There's another neurochemical that shows up, which is anandamide, that extends lateral thinking, which is our ability to connect really disparate uh, ideas together. So the neurochemistry of flow also sort of surrounds the problem of creativity and amplifies all aspects of it. There's also this aspect as it relates to decision-making in high-performance situations and whether that decision-making is coming from an intuitive place, a creative place, or, you know, you were talking about something like muscle memory before. It's, it's interesting how all those things come together in different ways within enhanced performance. Absolutely. And they, I mean, but you all, they're all, what you're talking about with muscle memory all you're talking about is, is, the, is the body, is learning patterns, right? You practice your baseball swing over and over and over again, turning those patterns into chunks which are stored in memory, and that's what the subconscious is accessing, right? These are little like subroutines, subprograms that tell you what to do, and they give you the information very, very quickly, so it feels sort of like automatic pilot, right? In flow, the feeling is effortless effort. It's each decision, each action leads seamlessly, fluidly, perfectly to the next, right? That's why flow is called flow, because the experience itself feels flowy. But under the surface, that's really the experience of massively heightened decision-making based on kind of our access to the subconscious and flow. The other interesting aspect, you touched on this a little while ago, is the impact that it has on our perception of time, either speeding it up or slowing it down. So we talked about transient hypofrontality, right? Temporary deactivation of the prefrontal cortex. Time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. This is David Eagleman's research at Baylor. And what happens, as David discovered, is that as parts of the brain start to wink out, as parts of the prefrontal cortex are shut off by flow, we can no longer perform the time calculation. We can't separate past from present from future and are plunged into what kind of psychologists call the deep now. Talk a little bit about that perception of time and our sense and, and what I think everybody that's probably listening to us has experienced that when you're in that moment, I mean, the time literally seems to melt away, to disappear. Yeah, I mean, it goes in one of two directions, right? Everybody's had, you know, either of these experiences, I think, on, on one end, time speeds up. So five hours will pass by in like five minutes. Never, this, this, is, this is really common. Everybody who's ever lost kind of themselves in a great work conversation, right? Um, you just get involved in a discussion and suddenly three hours have gone by. You know, that's microflow. That's time dilation. In more extreme cases, it goes in the other direction. Time slows down. So if you've ever been in a car crash, you get that freeze frame effect. This shows up in flow. But the feeling on the inside is your brain feels like it's moving at normal speed and everything else feels like it's slowed down. So it feels like you can anticipate the future. How do people talk about and there are many different ways that, that the language has evolved in this conversation about the, the seeming, and, and you talked about it with respect to your own experience, the seeming spiritual component that comes out of all of this. Well, it's a funny, I mean, it, it's a funny point because, it, you, you know, flow science dates back to kind of the 1870s. And for the first 
you know, 20 years. William James, for example, the Harvard psychologist and philosopher, physician, or physiologist, who did a lot of foundational work on flow, he thought he was looking at mystical experiences because he was studying kind of all the different world religions and he was studying a lot of psychedelics and they all seemed to produce these experiences that were very, very similar to flow. So he thought in the beginning we were looking at mystical experiences. Maslow comes along in the 1940s and he could care less about mystical experiences at that time. He was interested in really successful people. What do they share in common? What are the, you know, what, what, what does Eleanor Roosevelt have in common with Albert Einstein have in common with Frederick Douglass? And these were questions he was asking and interviewing these people and trying to figure out. And what he discovered is they all relied on kind of massively heightened attention to shift consciousness and produce flow states. So suddenly, you know, mystical experiences were out. It was this technology that was common maybe in all successful people. And then Chick Set Me High came along and discovered that flow, you know, is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's found in, you know, everyone everywhere provided certain initial conditions are met. So he opened it up wide. But it really started with people looking at kind of the neurobiology of spiritual experience. And it just, you know, it's just that a lot of, a lot of things that we, you know, we're, we, we are starting to understand, at least at a practical level, questions about truth and meaning and happiness, you know, small t, small m, small h there. Um, we know what they look like neurobiologically. And, and, and kind of how they show up and, and when they show up and they show up in flow. And this has kind of fundamental you know, psychological impacts. People kind of going back to Maslow pointed out that people on the other side of flow states are more complex. Um, it actually kind of fundamentally shifts personality. What do we still need to understand in terms of the connection between the biological, the biochemical, the mental side of all of this that we've been talking about and really how it enables the enhancement of human performance in purely physical situations. Well, you know, I, there's, there's two sides. There's a practical side and a theoretical side, and I think they're starting to converge. But what we need to do right now, we have a really good understanding of the psychology, right? We've got 150 years of people looking at the psychology of these states. We've got about 30 years of people starting to poke at the neurobiology of these states. But there's, you know changes in neurochemistry and neuroanatomy and neuroelectricity and what is the order of the cascade is still in question. And on top of all that, we have to map this further onto the physiology, what happens in the body um, at all aspects of the body, from breath to the endocrine system, and it goes on and on and on. So that map is still um, need, you know, still in need of being put together. But what, what the, what's so incredible about that is, you know, in RISE, I talk about, you know, action adventure sport athletes who have kind of relied on these technologies to drive kind of ultimate human performance faster and farther than ever before in history. And what this all means is this is only the front end of the revolution, right? Like the, the massive amounts of performance that we're seeing show up now in these activities is just the beginning of what's possible because we're just now starting to understand what this looks like under the hood and how we can apply this information across all domains. And one of the areas that's really fascinating is this idea of group flow. Yeah, group flow is, is, is super cool. And I think, again, a lot of people have had this experience, right? Group flow, there's flow states that can be an individual experience. You can also have a collective version of this where an entire kind of group gets into a flow state together. And, you know, the really common example of this is if you've ever seen a fourth quarter comeback in football where everybody appears to be in the exact right place at the exact right time and everything works perfectly. It looks like ballet and not football. That's group flow. Right, but if you've ever taken part in a great brainstorming session, you've also experienced group flow. If you've also, you know, lost an afternoon in a great conversation, well, that's also group flow. Really, really, really interesting. Um, one of the things, kind of, that's at the heart of it that, that is the most interesting to me is that 
kind of all these same neurochemicals that I mentioned earlier that, you know, amplify performance in various ways, they're all very potent social bonding chemicals. Norepinephrine and dopamine, for example, underpin romantic love, endorphins, which you also get in flow, um, underpin kind of mother-infant bonding or social bonding in adults. Anandamide is a, a kind of very warm, open to outside ideas and experience kind of sensation. Serotonin also underpins bonding. So you've got these incredible, incredible, incredible social bonding chemicals um, that show up in flow. So flow builds, you know, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly tight teams. It also raises the question of whether or not everybody in a group flow situation experiences it in the same way. It's a great question. I don't even know, you know, how to even begin. I mean, you could poke at it. There are there are ways actually you could poke at it. We know you know, when we measure flow, flow is a spectrum experience, right? So it's like any powerful emotion. You can be a little bit angry, mildly irked, or you could be in a homicidal rage, right? Same emotion. Flow exists on the same spectrum. And Chicksetmehigh identified kind of 10 psychological characteristics of flow. Microflow, you only have a couple of them. Action and awareness merge. Attention kind of gets driven to the now. It's really pulled in by the task at hand. You know, that's microflow. Macroflow is all 10. You get time dilation, the vanishing of self all effortless effort, all these things kind of kind of come into play. And, you know, we experience, you know, all spectrums, but who knows who gets into what, in, you know, and where on the group flow, where on the spectrum do they show up? Do these persons show up? I think that's highly, highly individual. But it's an interesting question. Nobody's asked that before, um, and now I'm going to have to look at it. And the spectrum also leads you to the question, I suppose, is there a state beyond flow? Is there an extreme version that leads to somewhere else that we don't quite understand yet? Well, all well, we, we now believe that kind of almost all altered states, right, have transient hypofrontality at their core. Glossolalia, speaking in tongues. This is, this is like a very, you know, common, quote-unquote, mystical experience, Pentecostal Christianity, and we now know it's because in, you know, in these trans states, the part of the brain that controls language is deactivating, right? So it's the same, same thing, but it's a very different experience. I don't know if there is a better or a next or anything like that. I do know what the data shows, which is that the people who are happiest on Earth who score off the charts for the, for the deepest life satisfaction are known to be the people who have most flow in their lives. So we kind of do know as far as this is the upper end point of human experience, of human happiness. Like this, this is, on a certain level, it, it's an interesting idea because it may be a look at as good as it gets. Um, in my, my personal experience, is that is, it is almost as good as it gets. Now, this is not to like, you, you also have to understand that I'm not trying to kind of disparage other kind of awe or love or, you know, you can be in love and in flow and chances are, you know, the times you were in love, falling in love, and in flow are the times you remember, right? Flow kind of amplifies all these situations because it brings, you know, all these social bonding chemicals will bring us closer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, a lot of these experiences go hand in hand, so I'm not kind of disparaging the other things. I'm saying they all may come together in flow. I Higher, better, I don't know what those words mean in this context, mm -hmm. really. Is there a genetic component in the way in which one is able to engage in this kind of flow? Have we seen any yet? Do we suspect there is? Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, first of all, on just on certain levels, right? It, now, there are 17 flow triggers, right? These are preconditions that lead to more flow. 
different people appear to be diff- more susceptible to different triggers, right? Some people, the action adventure sport athletes, can ride kind of risk, high physical consequences into the zone. Other people hate risk, but they can ride altruistic activity into flow, and that produces a state known as helper's high, which is an altruism-based flow state. So the ways we like to come in are very differently. And for example, people who come in through high consequences, we think this has something to do with the functioning of their dopamine receptors, and that's you know kind of genetically coded for. So that you know that for certain that plays a role. There's a lot of there's a lot of the neurochemicals in flow. There there are also genetically coded for. Certain people are going to be upregulated or downregulated or overproductive genes or whatnot. So that certainly is going to show up. There's a lot of other stuff that goes on. But we also know that this is kind of fundamental hardwiring, right? Everybody, it's evolutionary biology. We are all hardwired for ultimate performance, right? There are times we had to perform this way to save our lives. You know, so it's wired into all of us. So the access points may be genetically coded for, but that doesn't mean, you know, I haven't, I've yet met somebody who can't get into flow. You talk about evolutionary biology, the link even to something like fight or flight kind of response. Well, it's, it's actually kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum, but that's, there's a caveat here. So but fight or flight is kind of large quantities of norepinephrine, cortisol and adrenaline, right, being pumped into your body. And what this does, among other things, is it kind of narrows your choices. You have three. Once that starts, it's fight, flight, or flee, right? There's, those are the only three. Flight, excuse me, fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the only things that the body can do. Flow is the exact opposite. It's flowy because every decision can lead to any other decision. It's wide open creativity, wide open possibilities. It's the exact opposite of the fight or flight response. But at least in action sports and certain other situations, you, fi- you actually find flow on the other side of the fight-or-flight response. So the flow is a cycle that it goes through, and on the front end of the cycle, norepinephrine, cortisol, and adrenaline do go up. What happens is you can either go into fight-or-flight, or you can kind of ride that enhanced focus into flow, in which cases those chemicals tend to disappear and other chemicals replace them. They're very linked, but they're different experiences. Stephen Kotler. The book is The Rise of Superman, Decoding the Science of Ultimate Human Performance. Stephen, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 